Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zwei Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you, free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn. I'm excited to be with you as I always am, and it's good that I haven't had a chance to record a ton of episodes for the Zweig Letter this year, but we've got a, we have some great shows coming up in the future. But today's guest is certainly no exception to the laundry list of wonderful people that we're going to bring on the show to kind of share what they're doing in the design industry space. And so without further ado, I want to welcome David Bolt to the podcast. David is the president of GMB. They have three offices up in Michigan, uh, in the Great Lakes region, as well as one in Indiana, which is, as I like to call it, our heartland. And they're doing some really interesting things, but I'll let David tell you a little bit more about GMB and about who he is so that you know who you're listening to. But I certainly encourage you to grab a notepad, take some notes, or if you're driving, just you know, be sure to save this particular episode because you're going to want to uh, come back to it and just hear some of the nuggets of wisdom that will be shared today. So without further ado, David, how are you doing? I'm great, Randy. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, we we always start off at right at the onset of, of the Zweig Letter podcast, just asking of our guests superhero origin story, right? We all have something to share, but I would love for you to share your origin story, especially as it pertains to the design industry space. But you're always welcome to go back to birth if you want to or uh, childhood or high school, whatever, whatever works for you. But just remember, we only have a, a certain amount of time. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll spare you a lot of the details. So for me personally, I've always been kind of this right brain, left brain, kind of an individual. I love the creativity side of life and I love the logical side of life. So architecture seemed like a very good fit from an early stage in my life. The I think one of the cool things or one of the things that's unique about me is in my 25 years of a career now, I've been with only one company the whole time. So I started as an intern at GMB and now I am the president. And I think from an origin story standpoint, <laughs> some of the uniqueness or the coolness there is that I've been able to do a lot of different jobs in one company. 
And so I have got a lot of empathy for the people who are at our company because I've been through the hard stuff that they're going through. I've done the things they've done. And I think that's maybe a uniqueness that lends itself to me being okay at the job that I do, or the, at least trying the best that I can. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned that because when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, because for some reason, I guess we hadn't connected. And then I wanted to connect with you because there was somebody I want to introduce you to. I was going back and, you know, normally you go back and you're like, okay, they were at this company and they were at this company. And then I was just like, man, 23 years, this dude's been at one place. And that's, it's honestly, David, it's refreshing to see that it's not the norm anymore, you know? And that's one of the challenges that we find in this space is how do you, within your organization, maintain continuity with your employees when people typically are moving around as frequently as they are, right? Yeah. But people have asked me, how do you stay at one place for so long? And I think for me, it's been the fact that I've been able to do lots of different jobs. So while I've been at one location, I've been able to do lots of different things. And I think that's what people are often looking for is what's the next challenge and what's the next thing. So that's, I think, helped me in my leadership position now too, is saying, hey, people need that next challenge, right? Or they will leave. So giving them that thing to look forward to has been part of my career and my origin. Uh, And I think I, I appreciate that and see that in other people. And if they don't have that opportunity and that next thing to look forward to, they're going to look for it somewhere else. So if you can give it to them in one place, that's awesome. And they'll stick around. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, do you across your staff have a fairly uh, high amount of longevity within GMB? Yeah, we do. We have, we actually just had a employee retire who was at 46 years in our company, which is amazing. And we've got a couple right now that are over 30. Wow. Uh, so we've got a lot of good longevity and yet our growth path as well has had us, we're forced to hire a lot of people. So we've got a lot of new employees and a lot of uh, very senior employees who have been around for a long time, which is a really cool mix. Yeah. Yeah. And that person at 46 years, they, they kind of know where all the bodies are buried. So, you know, they you, do. as they walk out the door, you ask them to draw a map, right? <laughs> just, that's just right. Kind of share right. that with you as you leave. But leave us your phone number. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, you know, and it's so funny because I've always found that this is one of those industries where, you know, as long as your health is strong, you can continue doing what you do to a high level for a long time. I remember. That's right working on a project with a client of Zui Groups and I had gone out to visit them in, they were out in the Bay, in, I'm sorry, in LA and just an outstanding architect, you know, a prototypical architect, black turtleneck, you know, horn rim glasses, the whole nine yards, just, I mean, just out of central casting. And he was 80 years old and he was still one of the primary <laughs> job winners in the company. I mean, and that was the, I mean, he had turned over the reins to some younger folks, but he, I mean, he did not let any grass grow under his feet. And he was like, hey, as long as I'm breathing, I can do this. And I hear that a lot from individuals in this industry. So I'm curious to know how you kind of reconcile that, right? Because, I mean, you're a young guy. I'm looking at you. I mean, you look like you just got out of high school. And that's, that's saying something. You've got some good genes there. But, you know, at some point, you're going to want to ultimately think about passing that baton because I can imagine that you're not like, oh, I'm just going to hold this position for forever and a day. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's, that is, I think, the essence of what sort of drives us in our company and our growth trajectory, because it's really through growth that you're able to give people new opportunities. And that includes for myself, too. 
if we stay sort of stagnant and we stay constant in our size and what we're trying to do, that doesn't give new people opportunity. It doesn't give people that that mindset of a new challenge and the next thing. So yeah, so for me too, it's the same thing is what is that next opportunity? What is the next growth piece for us? Because if I can keep growing, then I can move to something different. Somebody can replace what I'm doing. It gives new opportunity for more people. And I think the cycle just continues to be very positive for everybody. So that's a big piece of our culture is how do we continue to grow and think about the future and change and flexibility and all of those things. It's a big part of who we are. I mean, I'm finding more and more firms in the design industry space are adopting that mindset, right? Whereas it was before, it was like, once you were handed the mantle and you had that mantle of leadership, you were holding on to it for dear life. You were not relinquishing it to anybody. Nowadays, the concept and the paradigm has shifted to where almost this mindset, which is something I've shared in many leadership trainings that I've done, is that as a leader, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Not that anybody's going to fire you, but that you're going to create opportunities for others behind you to step into where you are so that you can then go do something else. And I think that is, that's an important lesson for people to kind of hear. And it's one of those where I don't mind repeating that. And people have heard it said that I've said it on this podcast many a time because it bears repeating. And we need that reminder because from the lowest rungs of the ladder in any design firm, Individuals need to understand that they need to create space for themselves as well as for other people around them. So assistant project managers, project managers, it's not that they're going to, you know, raise somebody up and that person's going to take their role as a PM. Maybe that will happen. But if they do that, then what's the likelihood of you being able to then step into a larger role or do something else that you've only dreamed of? But because you have trained enough people and have taken people under your wings, it becomes that much easier to do that and to maybe really experience what you want to experience within your career. Yeah, that's spot on. We talk a lot about in our company, this idea of an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. And if you've got a scarcity mindset, then you hoard information, you hoard projects, you hoard things because you don't feel there's enough for everybody. If you've got an abundance mindset, then everybody's got an opportunity and you can continue to move forward, which is, a, I think, a much more positive way of looking at the world. You know, it really is. And, and when I got involved in this, you know, just like you, I, I know I look young, but um, I got involved in this industry in the 90s. And back then it was a little different, right? I mean, it was you only shared information when you needed to. Nowadays, with the Internet and the prevalence of just me at the tip of my as long as I pick up this phone, I can access any information that I I need. No longer are people gatekeepers of information. And that has fundamentally changed how we operate because you're getting younger and younger people that are figuring things out faster and faster. And a lot of that is due to the digital age. A lot of that is due to the exchange of information. And as a leader, you have to reconcile yourself to that effect, right? Because it's not like it was in the 80s and 90s where you could hold information close to the vest and just only share it with a certain few people and you know hope that it didn't get out. And now it's like all that information is readily accessible by everyone in your firm. Yeah, that's right. We talk about that too a lot. Knowledge is not something to be hoarded. Knowledge is something to be shared. We live in the information age and we should treat it like it's a scarce commodity. (laughs) And boy, the reality is we find 
when you start to share information and you start to grow people's knowledge, the whole organization gets better. You just yeah. have a lot of people doing a lot of great things. And as a whole, we all are doing better. So absolutely. Yeah, and, great. you know, you're not only are you doing better internally, but externally when it comes to engaging with clients, potential clients, stakeholders in the communities that you serve, you are the go to person. Full stop. Because people trust you. They know that you're constantly seeking ways to advance yourself and that you're always looking for a way to provide the highest level of service and solutions to the needs that your clients have. Yeah. And boy, what it builds trust too, right? We, yeah. This is another theme that we have a lot in our company is the idea that when you build a great team together, you have to have trust. And if you're willing to be transparent and share information, that builds trust faster than anything else oh. within a team. So whether that's your client being your team or internally being your team, this is that's constantly the thing that we try to talk about is how do you build trust amongst everybody? Right, right. And that's key. That really is. So just to kind of acquaint our listeners a little bit more with who GMB is, tell us a little bit about the mix of work that you do. I know you guys are, are K through 12 specialists and you yeah. do higher education. So education is the theme of the day every day at GMB. But tell us a little bit about how you have have evolved in that space, which is, you know, it's a tough space to be. And I have some friends that are ruling things in certain states around the country. And it seems that the design firms that deliver the best products and really deliver higher and above what their client is expecting are the ones that keep getting the follow-up work. But I'd be curious to know if you would just share with our audience a little bit about GMB's profile when it comes to K through 12 and higher ed. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time to sort of talk about the history of our company too. We're a, we were founded in the late sixties. So we're a 54 year old company at this point. And we sort of started in a very traditional way, just a lot of a generalist type of work. And then in the 90s, we started to get a lot of schoolwork as part of our portfolio mm -hmm. and that we started to build more and more of that into our whole overall portfolio. But we still had a lot of different other silos that we were working in as well. We really looked and in uh, about 2017 was about the time that we started to look at our portfolio and say, we're doing about 70 to 80 percent of our work in the education space. Maybe it's time to really talk about saying that that's our only market that we really want to serve. And in a meaningful way, when we looked at how we delivered projects and how we were able to create relationships in the education space, it was such a meaningful space for us to work in. And the difference that we felt that we could really make in the world by creating better educational spaces was a, a big part of why we wanted to really say, this is the thing that we want to do as a company and the purpose that we want to give to the world. So we valued knowledge and we valued that that growth mindset and that future thinking uh, way of looking. And education was just absolutely that right fit for us to say, hey, this is what we want to do in the world and the difference that we want to make. So about five, six years ago, we really said that's going to become our, our only in total market. So we serve the K-12 and the higher ed markets, the education space. We really want to think of ourselves as an education professional services company. And we have our work in the Midwest primarily, where our offices are located in the, in the K-12 space, certainly in higher ed. We branch out a little bit further and we've done some work around the country, but that's kind of our portfolio mix. And it's about 
70 to 80% in the K-12 world, and it's 10, 20% in the higher ed space. You know, I'm curious to know, and so so you've kind of, wet, you weathered the storm through the pandemic. Was Did things taper off at all, or were you fairly steady with work because of maybe existing contracts that predated the pandemic, and, and you were able to ride through that wave? Yeah, we definitely were fortunate to have some of those longer contracts in the education space of multi-year projects and multi-year contracts that allowed us to get through that. But we all had that heartbeat moment in the early in the pandemic, especially a lot of our work is uh, with bond referendums. And so a lot of schools chose not to or to pause their bond referendums during that pandemic phase. Sure. They just said, hey, we're not the uncertainty right now of community and the uncertainty of what's going on. We're going to put a pause on that. So we had a couple of moments where we, we kind of had to swallow hard and say, what does this look like for schools going forward? But we were able to get through that and come out the other side and, and continue to do a lot of good work. Yeah. You know, and here's a question that I, I got to ask you, because I, I know that in several states, there has been a strong move towards school vouchers. How will that is that going to impact the way that you serve your current marketplaces? Are you finding, are you kind of, what are you hearing in terms of the work that you're doing from a K through 12? Because I would imagine that a lion's share of the work you do is for public schools. And so how will some of the school voucher movements that we're seeing across the country and many states, how will that impact the way that you guys work and interact with your clients? Yeah, that's a great question. We definitely have our ear to the ground on that one right now. That is a big movement going on. And I think you've correctly identified a lot of our work is in the public school space. There's a couple of things I think that sort of we are looking at or thinking about. One is how do we continue to look at alternative funding methods and different ways for schools to be able to do good work and do renovations and do some strategic building projects? that maybe don't rely necessarily totally on bond referendums. Yeah. So I think that's one piece of what we're trying to look at, maybe what is coming in the future and how do we look at different funding methods. The other thing that we talk about in our company a lot is the Simon Sinek in Infinite Game. I don't know if you're familiar with that <laughs> Absolutely. book. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a great book. It, so It is. And it's really influenced us over the last few years about thinking that long-term, long game about what we do. And how do we continue to really think purposefully about what our mission is? And so if we talk internally about our goal is to make sure students are educated and we create a better future and a better life through education, then it's got to weather these types of political movements. I think Simon Sinek talks about that, right? That (laughs) these infinite games can weather the different types of political movements that happen. And I, I think... We just have to sit there and say, we're willing to be flexible, we're willing to pivot, but in the end, we still believe that there are students that need to be educated. We still believe that education is the best way for the future of our world. And so how do we continue to serve that in a meaningful way? So we keep our ear to the ground and we look for those pivot moments. I think in the public school sector, like the idea of where alternate funding is a big piece of that. And then, yeah, in the in some of the private school sector, we definitely serve those schools as well, too. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think sometimes people are totally held hostage to, you know, 
the motions of politics in our country specifically when it comes to business, right? But there are a lot of companies out there across different verticals that are successful regardless of who's in office. And I think a lot of that success is breeded from staying focused on the most important thing, right? Not allowing you to, you know, be out there like it's like squirrel, you know, all of, all of a sudden, every time there's a shiny new object, you're running towards that. But staying focused, like you said, in offering a good service for a client day in and day out. And over time, you know, like they say, you're, you're known by your fruit. So you're whatever you're good at. At any time, whether it was 2008 or 2019 or 2022, you're still going to be good at. And it's just a matter of holding steady, even through some of those ups and downs that, you know, we're inevitably going to go through as individuals, but especially as organizations and businesses. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's important. But so tell us just a little bit about how you, I know you have some unique structures. I remember when Jamie Claire, I was familiar with your firm, but not familiar, familiar. And Jamie Claire, shout out to Jamie Claire. I said, oh, you, this is somebody that you need to talk to. You should bring them on the podcast because they're doing some interesting things. But I'd love for you just to kind of share a little bit about the, the organizational structure of GMB. And this is where some of the folks listening may want to take some notes, but, and I've heard some of what you've done in past guests, but I'd love for you just to kind of spell out why you have found such success with your organizational structure at GMB. Yeah, yeah. So this, I think, stems from back to that question of what is my origin story? Coming up through the organization, feeling all of the different positions within the company, empathizing with all of the people who are doing the good work every day. When I got into a position of leadership and my leadership team who joined me, we we really were at a size of our organization, in, we we're about 70, 80 people. And that starts to be one of those tipping points where you feel that there's need for more management, more some more system to help guide the organization. There's all of these sort of thresholds that happen along an organization's pathway. And we were at one of those. And so we were taking some deep looks into our organization and say, what is going on? How do we continue to help structure and organize ourselves? What does this mean? And we were set up in a fairly traditional way with principals in charge and different, basically different groups working under individuals that were principals in charge. And we started to really look at what are some of the fundamentals of the beliefs that we have about our company and where we want to go and how are we structured and how do those things either match or how do they not match? And I'll sort of summarize it down to one big aha moment for us, which was, do we put people first or do we do put process first? And we sort of believed these two fundamental things. One is we treat people really well and we really wanted to make sure we're caring for the people that work in our organization. And we want to deliver just a really great product. We want to create good relationships with the clients and we want to really put together good work, good designs, good buildings. But sometimes those things are at odds and there are times when those when the rub happens and every organization has to pick at a moment in time and say, well, which one is going to supersede the other one? And it, not that they're both not important. They're both very important. But at some point, one has to supersede the other. And we start to really look at it and say, well, what happens when it's people instead of the process or people instead of the product? Not that we're not going to deliver a great product, but what happens when we treat our people first? And that became our guiding principle of people first. And when we started to really unpack that, 
that started us on this journey of, well, when you do that, you have to start reorganizing a lot of different things in your company. So we as a leadership team read this book called Team of Teams, which is by uh, General Stanley McChrystal. Yeah. You're not familiar heard of with book. it? Yeah. 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 I've heard so of that book. He's, he wrote this book that was about a realignment of how the U.S. Army was working. And the fundamental concept there was that the hierarchical structure of the army was not working in a very rapid and flexible environment that didn't allow a lot of agility. And we kind of looked at that and was like, well, there's a big parallel to what we're doing. We need to be agile. We need to be flexible. We need to be able to quickly pivot on different things. So they created this structure called the team of teams structure. So it's teams made up of other teams. And that was one of the catalysts for our reinventing of who we are. We read a lot of other books about this different types of organizational structures. And we decided that we were going to really look at this team of teams model, which is a team-based structure, not an individual hierarchical structure. So there are teams that have responsibility, but we don't give power to individuals within the organization. And so you don't report up to a manager. We have a lot of autonomy within our organization, a lot of empowerment of individuals within the organization. And we've really created a whole system and a structure around this people first team of teams model. And as you can imagine, that journey really started a whole bunch of dominoes for us. Yeah. I'd say we're still on the learning path of what that means. But it led to a lot of different other decisions along the way and a lot of different restructure and a way that we think about ourselves in a lot of different lights, including during the pandemic and how we went flexible and how it led to a lot of a lot of thinking in that regard as well. When you say flexible, do you mean in terms of how people worked and where people worked? Yeah, that's right. So everybody was sort of forced into this flexible working environment during the pandemic. It was really kind of a seamless change for us to move out of offices and move to flexible working. And so with our sort of our core values, we've kept that working environment to be very flexible for people. So we still have physical spaces that people can land in, but nobody's required to go there. And we've just allowed our employees to be just radically flexible in both their hours and and in their location. And that's been a big, it's been a big, easy change for us, I'd say. Yeah, I love that. And I know, I know there's somebody listening to this like, okay, great. Well, how do you measure that? Right. How do you, how do you keep track of that? I would love to just let my people work from wherever, whenever, but how do you measure that? Right. Because I remember going into firms and the first thing out of everybody's mouth is I'm, you know, I would do a lot of executive search work. And so we worked with companies all over the, the country from a talent acquisition perspective. And you know, the first thing that they would mention out of their mouths is we need somebody that's, you know, 80 to 90% utilized and the whole, I mean, so the, just the whole paradigm has shifted. A lot of it, it's due to the pandemic. A lot of it's due to just, you know, kind of doing what you need to do because of the current circumstances. But then also a lot of it is just, you know, there was a day of reckoning coming for our industry in terms of how we handled man hours or hours, right? For employees. And so you know, I'm just curious to know how did you guys reconcile that aspect of it and what kind of what was that conversation like with and, and I won't say the leadership, but but with some of the teams? Yeah, well, here's the part where I'm going to blow everybody's mind. <laughs> we don't measure hours. We don't bill that way. 
and we don't measure our employees with hours. Wow. And yeah, that's the part where I know everybody's going to stop your car right now and pull over <laughs> to the side of the road because that's the reaction I always get when I say that. Yeah. But it's something that we were doing pre-pandemic. Okay. And so that's how, that that's sort of why allowing that flexibility to shift was sort of really easy for us. So you hear a lot right now about this concept of let's measure the outputs, not the inputs. And that is something that we've always sort of talked about, not maybe using those words. That's, those are sort of newer language that I hear now. But we used to talk about we, we look at the deadlines mm-hmm. and uh, that we measure to the deadlines. So right. if you're making the deadlines and you're getting the projects done and they're going out the door, that's the thing we care about the most. We set our fee structure based on projects, not on billable hours. So we think there's a value for what we do and we negotiate for that value and we set a fee based on that value. So we don't have to measure our employees hours um, in order to bill, which means that we don't have to measure people's utilization. And man, does that free you up to do a lot of really cool things in an organization when you're not worried about trying to, everybody trying to hit certain utilization targets. Yeah. And we all know that you can game utilization targets. You can game hours. Um, there are people who are way more efficient and people who are way less efficient. And why should the more efficient people get punished for something? So we've never really done that. We've never measured hours and we've never measured, measured utilization. And that's, that is a, uh, it's a cultural thing. And so people might ask, okay, well, where does accountability come in? And that's where a strong team-based structure really has to be the governing item for how do you hold people accountable? Because it doesn't mean that you're not accountable to somebody. And it doesn't mean you don't have to be responsible to do something. But when your team, the people that you trust the most and the people that are going to look you in the eye every day, when you're letting them down, that's way more powerful then some manager saying, hey, you hit 78% utilization and we really need you to hit 80. It's a human reaction, right? Versus sort of a mechanical reaction. Sure. Man, you're kind of blowing my mind right now with this. <laughs> so, okay, what what has, or how has your conversation been with your clients when you explain that, right? Because I, I can imagine, yeah. I mean, I get it on inside, you know, in every company, we can have that conversation. What is it like when you manage the expectations of a client on a project when they're like, we want you to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this project because we need to get it out the door. And then you tell them, oh, that's great. We can definitely do that. We just don't focus on billable hours. We, you know, our goal is to just get this job done and we will yep. do it for you in an expedited manner. Yeah. And I think it has the same positive effect on the clients because they're not worried about, well, if I make a phone call and I call my architect, am I going to get billed for that? They're not worried about, well, wait a minute, we wanted to pivot to this thing. And am I going to get nickeled and dimed over adding a little bit of extra something? When we talk about, hey, we're going to deliver this project to you. Here's the scope. I mean, we still have to be clear about the scope and some of the boundaries of that. Mm -hmm. And here's the value we think we bring to that. Now our job is just to get that done. And sometimes we're more efficient, certainly at doing that. And sometimes we're less efficient at doing that. But then that's us owning that, right? And that's how we can talk about it with the client that we think we're bringing you a value. We're going to bring you that value. And so we're not going to worry about the fact that maybe we have to do a little bit more to get this done because we think you deserve that and we owe you that value. So. They definitely becomes much more, again, 
this people first culture, right? It's sure. human centered culture yeah. is I think what allows us to do that because it's about treating people as people and relationships as relationships and not as commodities and things that are just simply transactional. Yeah, well, no, that makes perfect sense. So, and, and I know this is going to be a next question on somebody's mind. I'm just in my head, I'm just playing out all the questions that some of our listeners might have. How does this play into profit? How does it impact that aspect of it? Yeah. So the way that we look at profit, I mean, I'll say this, we've been very profitable as a result of all of this. And I think it's because we're also allowed that flexibility of saying, hey, we're delivering a value for this product. And if we do that really efficiently on our end, then we can make a lot more profit by doing that, right? When we're not necessarily worried about the billable side of life. And yes, we are subsidizing other things in that process. But we look at profit holistically. So the whole company is a one company. We don't have profit silos within our organization. We don't have individual, we don't look at individual projects as silos as well, which allows, again, everybody to sort of free up and think about delivering good work and not be so concerned all the time about those things. When When you're freed to not worry about the things that, we say, hey, that's secondary. The primary thing is create a great relationship, create trust, create a great team, deliver a good product. When we put those things first, it's amazing how much the human spirit will deliver good things as a result. Wow. So, man, okay, now that makes perfect sense. I hope, I hope some of our listeners pick that up because I heard some very clear examples that were laid out there. One of the things that you guys were able to institute just right before the pandemic was that you set yourself up as an ESOP, which kind of makes sense given how you're structured, right? Because it's like, yeah. you know, this is, you know, we rise and fall together, rising as, as Chad Kleinens would love to say, a rising tide lifts all ships. All of our ships are going to either rise or fall together, not, you know, individually. So you decided to, uh, in 2019, I, I guess it was to start is yeah. to become an ESOP. What was that journey like? And, and how has that played a role for you? as you move forward. Yeah, that has been a great part of this journey. Like I said, when we started to go down this people first path, the dominoes started to fall and there was a lot of other things that sort of bubbled to the surface. And a big one pretty quickly that came up was ownership of the company. Yeah, How does that work when you're talking about a team environment, where you're talking about, hey, we're all in this together. We're all working hard together. How does an ownership piece of that work. And so we did a long examination of a lot of different models of ownership. We were, again, a sort of traditional model where we had 15 of our principals who were the owners who owned the company, all owned various different share pieces of the company. And so as we looked at it, we said, employee ownership is really a great model for us. And there are others, but for us, it was the right thing at the right time to say, we're going to go down this ESOP path. And so there was a, it was about a year process of going through a lot of the legwork and the, the background and getting all the parts and pieces to fall into place and transitioning that. And we're a really, I think, a, a unique or a weird example of an ESOP because a lot of people use the ESOP as a way to transition out retiring owners mm-hmm. from the company, which is a, it's a great use of an ESOP to do that. We didn't do that. As you can see, I'm, I'm a pretty young guy. I'm going to be around for a while yet. So for me to transfer ownership of the company into an ESOP at this stage of my career is sort of unheard of. 
It's kind of a unique aspect of that, but it's based on this belief of people first and the company being together and unified as one. So that was that was a really fun thing. It was really cool to announce to the whole company on the day that we decided to do it that that was it was finalized and and everybody stood up and cheered and it was fantastic. We went 100% ESOP on day 1, so we didn't transition it slowly. We said the whole company belongs to all of you on day 1. That's called I ripping the band-aid off. <laughs> we did. We yeah. just we jumped into the water, right? Just 2 feet straight in. Right. I think the biggest thing I would say that has been a a positive result out of transitioning to an ESOP is the ability to really say the proof of what we're talking about when we talk about these concepts of it's people first, it's all about you, it's it, we're all together, that the proof sits right there, right? Mm-hmm. The proof is right in the pudding when we say, look, this company belongs to you and the profit that we make belongs to you. Yeah. And we all benefit when we do well. We all... so. There's no point in gaming your hours. There's no point in trying to manipulate the system because we all lose as a result. You're not, you know, messing with somebody who is kind of this mysterious owner that I never see. You're really, it's about you. And so that that ownership really becomes a tangible thing on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. So you've had a couple of years of, of ESOP experience, if you will. Yeah. What has been the verdict so far in terms of you know, people seeing, wow, this is the actual benefit of being in an ESOP. There's being a, an early on ESOP. For those who have gone through that, it's sort of hard at the beginning yeah, because it's, you're really working your way from a ground zero. Mm-hmm. So the real true value of it is something that is a future value. And so one of the things that I think if there's a sort of a lesson in this or something that we continue to learn, it's the you're really putting a lot of value in people's futures, which is hard for some people. And especially in the last couple of years during the pandemic, things have been right at the forefront of people's minds, uh, inflation this past year. And so it's sometimes hard to say, okay, yes, but don't forget, you're also getting this future benefit. And people are thinking, well, yeah, but you know, I got to pay my bills tomorrow too. Right. Um, So I think there's, there is that tension that sits there, but I think, the benefit that I think we definitely see is this constant being able to be able to remind people that, yes, this company is all about you. So the decisions that we're making, we're making collectively, we're making together. And the things that you do every day affects you directly. And I think people do feel that. I think they do recognize that. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you're right. I mean, it is, it's, you know, it gets back to what you said earlier about, about Simon Sinek and the infinite game. I mean, you have, it's, you're constantly, it's long-term, right? It's not, yeah. you know, I, I always tell my kids this, you know, it's like slow and steady always wins the race. I mean, it's not, and the crazy thing is even in business, like we do in life, right? We're constantly looking at ways that we can shortcut things. We want that microwave uh, result and none of that lasts, you know, and that's just kind of the reality of it. And especially in business, you've got to be willing to run a long race in order to see, you know, how things pan out. I think the interesting challenge with this approach will be with the the younger generation that's coming on board, right? The Gen Z and the next what's about to be gener- Generation A. I mean, there is, you know, each generation presents its own subset of 
not necessarily challenges, but I would say more opportunities for how you address them and manage their expectations about what they can expect. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think there's a value system in something like an ESOP that does resonate with that generation, even if they don't necessarily see those immediate benefits. And I think it's hard sometimes because they are sort of looking at the shopping list of places that they can go. And they're really looking at a lot of different aspects of what those benefits are. And the convincing people that a long benefit is a good thing is kind of hard, but saying things like, Hey, this is a, a, one of the ways that we create more equity and wealth in our country. This is a way that we create purpose for a lot more people and really saying, Hey, look, this is a belief system that this company believes in. And whether you see the tangible benefit or not right away, or whether you think that that is a tangible benefit or not, it still speaks to the belief and the character of the company that you're a part of, because we value this thing that says it's about you, not about somebody else. And I think that's where that the biggest impact is talking about culture and character and values of the company. Yeah. Well, and you know, I'd be curious to know as I, as I'm listening to you talk, and I mean, just this whole people first mindset. How has that actually played into you know this whole concept of retention? Right? I mean, recruitment's one one of the. You talk to any leader in any design firm across the board; their biggest challenge is finding good talent to fill the yeah. roles that they need to fill, and then not just finding them, but remaining relevant in their eyes and keeping them at, so that they're not walking out the back door. What are you guys doing that is affording you that opportunity beyond just the whole concept of people first and folks understanding that you're not trying to extract every ounce of value out of them, but that you you want them to have a really positive experience while coming to work at GMB? Yeah. I think a great example of this is how we try to onboard people and bring them into the organization on day one. So first of all, we used to be really, really bad at this. (laughs) Uh, It used to be this experience of somebody would show up to work and it was just kind of this floundering and (laughs) nobody really knew to do. We actually have a story of a new employee who showed up to work one day. He was 15 minutes early. And he couldn't get in the door because the door <laughs> you know, didn't unlock till 8 a.m. So right. he's stuck outside the door. Right. Finally, somebody lets him in and he's sitting in the lobby only to find out that the principal that we had assigned to him was gone that day on a job site. Oh. So he had nothing to do. And we just said, OK, this is ridiculous. The experience of somebody who says, I'm excited to work here. I'm nervous to work here. I yeah. don't know what life is going to be like. We've got to improve that experience. And so we went through a pretty extensive process of revamping our whole onboarding system. So now what happens is when we first hire an employee, before they ever show up, they get a box in the mail from us. And that box includes a letter from their onboarding buddy. So not a person who's going to be in charge of them, but just a buddy within the company who is going to be their friend on day one. And it's got a letter from them saying, hi, excited can't wait to meet you. I'm going to meet you at the door at eight o'clock. It has a, here's what to expect on day one. And we outline, here's what's going to happen at exactly, you know, eight o'clock to nine o'clock. You're going to meet with this person and talk about these things from nine to 10. You're going to do this at noon. Somebody's going to take you out to lunch. Don't pack your lunch. We're going to buy you lunch on day one. So it goes through that. 
It's got a little, it's, you know, GMB swag in there. So they, they feel like they're part of the club already. Got to have the swag. Uh, <laughs> Got to have some good swag, a yep. water bottle or a t-shirt or something. And then we have a GMB 101 booklet that we give them, which is all about the unique things that make us what we feel are different. And so it starts to outline some of these unique things we're talking about. Like we have a team of teams model. We are an ESOP. We, you know, here's some insider lingo that you might not encounter in your first experience here because all companies have those too right the little acronyms that we use little code words and everybody knows what those mean except for the new people so we really try to make it an easy day one when they get here on day one then their onboarding buddy onboard buddy meets them and then they get a scavenger hunt checklist for their first week and that they've got to go around and do a bunch of different things and that helps them meet new people acclimate into the systems, try out their hands on some different activities. And that really gets them involved and right away involved within the organization. Then we do a whole bunch of other things too. I can can keep going. No, uh, I mean, it's not, I I love the fact that you're not leaving any stone unturned. And, you know, there is sometimes a lot of buyer's remorse that happens really early on in the recruitment process once somebody has joined your firm. And I think, I mean, just what you're laying out, I know in some people's ears, it may sound, oh, that just sounds like overkill. That's just too much. We just take our folks out to lunch. We put a a fleece on their desk and we give them their computer and their work pass to get into and out of the office. And that's the extent of it. And, you know, it's, you spent so much to get the person on board you might as well spend a little bit more to really make it a unique experience. And I can tell you the folks that I've talked to that have joined firms that I've recruited for that have had really positive experiences, all of their onboarding was tight. Everything was integrated. People knew what was going on. It was never like, who are you? You're starting today. Oh, I had no idea. That's like the most deflating thing to do once you signed on the dotted line to join a company. To only be told, oh, you didn't matter enough for anybody to get notification about you coming on board. I mean, that's just and, you know, I get it. Sometimes people are just super busy, but I've always told people to over index in that area when you're recruiting over index in the area of really building a strong foundation right from the start, because you honestly, you only have one chance to make a really good impression. Yeah, I I totally agree. And that has just been, I think that's been a game changer for us as far as getting people on board. The other thing then that we do to continue to work on those relationships throughout the life cycle of anybody within the organization. So this is another one of those things that the freedom of not having billable hours or utilization allows us. We have what we call our pods. So a pod is a group of eight to 10 people who are all part of a a little group and you're assigned to that uh, from day one and you continue that throughout your whole journey. And their whole goal is they meet every day for 15 minutes and just talk about their life. It's nothing more than just, hey, how's it going? Where's life at? What'd you do last night? Anything you're looking forward to today? Any work concerns that you've got? These aren't project teams. These aren't discipline teams. These are interdisciplinary mixed teams, generational mix geographically mixed teams and they're just eight to 10 people. And it's all about creating relationships and creating trust within the organization. And they meet for 15 minutes and talk about a whole variety of things. They play different games. (laughs) The pods will get together and do little competitions against each other. 
but it's just about culture building. And that's the only thing. And we spent every day, 15 minutes, the whole organization, just building culture and trust amongst our teammates. And that's, I think that's been one of our biggest game changer differentiators too, for allowing people to feel welcome, to feel part of a community. The sense of belonging uh, is really a really important aspect of what we're trying to do with that. So given what you just described, are sometimes these done face to face and sometimes they're virtual? So it's it can be a mixture. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it can be okay. a mixture. And the really cool thing is before the pandemic started, or when we were, I should say this, we were in one office primarily yeah. mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. And so they was all face to face. And then we started to add these other offices and we had to figure out quickly, well, how do <laughs> those people mix in? Yeah. And so this whole idea of hybrid before hybrid was cool, right. uh, was part of our, our organizational culture. So yeah, this is a face-to-face, virtual, whatever it is, mixing of people. It's just to to get to know each other a little bit better. They stick together for about a year and a half. Yep. And then we switch them out and then they you get assigned to a new team. I love that. It's almost like graduating from one grade to another, right? As far as that's yep. concerned. A grades in relationship because you've, you, you've established it. You've had a chance to really build and get to know somebody. And then you get put on another pod so that you can meet a whole new group of people. I think that's a I, that's an interesting that in and of itself is a really interesting dynamic that you guys are introducing. So I hope somebody listens to this and steals that idea Take um, it, for their yes. own for their own benefit. So, man, we listen. I could talk to you all day, David, on this. this there's just so many good things that are happening. I have one specific question that I did want to ask you about your work. And specifically on the higher ed side of things, and then we'll we'll find a a landing spot, and and certainly we'll, we want to get your contact information because I know there's some people listening to this that are going to want to connect with you. But what are you seeing with some of the changing dynamics in higher education, and how is that impacting how you do education work in that space specifically? Right, because I I think you mean. Where we see, like where I am here in Northwest Arkansas, there's a big move to upskilling, especially for kids coming out of high school. You know, there's this whole movement of, well, maybe you don't have to go to college. And so our our community college is actually outstanding that's up here in WAC. And I'm just curious to see what you kind of are reading in the tea leaves when it comes to serving the needs of higher education. And are you seeing any pullback at all in that space? Or is there a modification of how they're doing things? Yeah, that's the $10 million question right now. It's a great question, Randy, that a lot of the trends that we are seeing are similar to what you're you're talking about. There's a lot. So one of our biggest clients is Ivy Tech Community College in mm-hmm. Indiana, mm-hmm. and they are just investing so much in this career, technical career aspect of the work that automation or robotics, manufacturing, I think there's a huge future in that. And so pivoting to those types of skills, I think, is a huge thing we're seeing. We're seeing it even in traditional four-year liberal arts colleges is they're they're adding these more technical or manufacturing type programs within their four-year college. So we definitely see that. I think the other thing that sort of we we are seeing is the value of college is not just about this idea, can I get the knowledge, right? Because it is sort of ubiquitous and they can get it in a lot of places. But it is about this idea of community and relationship building. So we're seeing a lot of our college and universities investing in how to build community Mm -hmm. within their campuses. And 
building places and spaces that are meaningful for community to come together and yes. how do how do they really engage with not just even their their small community but the community that they're part of as well right and so i think they're seeing their value within the world as something that maybe needs to broaden beyond what they traditionally just thought of as the socratic method of bringing <laughs> students onto campus and dumping knowledge from the professor's brains into the students and understanding that it is more about people and relationships, if that's the theme that keeps coming up here today, right? It's how do we build community? How do we prepare humans to be awesome in this world? And then how do those campuses interact with the larger communities they're part of and provide real value, whether it's in arts, whether it's in sports, whether it's in these other types of activities. So they yeah. can become these centralized hubs for communities that I think are beyond just this learning and knowledge transfer. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, I see that because I, I mean, I'm literally steps from the University of Arkansas, which is our land grant institution here in Fayetteville, up in the Northwest corner of the state. And uh, I've seen exactly what you're describing. I'm seeing that being implemented in a lot of locations throughout the campus where there's just gathering places for people. And there's a, just a movement in general. Our, our library just had a, a brand new expansion. And one of the, the areas of that expansion is called the Gathering Glade. It's just this idea and it, it it's multi-purpose. It's outdoors. It, it has this kind of, you know, outdoor theater feel, but it can be used for a multitude of things from yoga to a cocktail reception to just a kids get together to, you know, I mean, you name it, it can be used that way. And I think that in and of itself in universities, if there is a focus towards that, then it would require, you know, really good design professionals to kind of help utilize to the space to its highest and best use. That's right. Yes. So anyway, that's a commercial for you right there. So yeah, you can, thank you. you yeah, I you can take it. that and package it up, and just send it to some of your potential clients and, and just say, hey, you know, we talked about this on a podcast with uh, this wide letter. So. But uh, man, David, this was really enriching. I, I could go on and on. I mean, we're, we're almost up to an hour now. But before you know it, we're going to be in Joe Rogan territory. So yeah. in, ter in terms of a, a, a long podcast, but this is definitely was well worth the time and the effort. And I want to I want to thank you personally on behalf of Zwei Group and the Zwei Letter podcast for just taking time out of your schedule to just kind of share with us what's going on in your world, what you guys are doing at GMB. For those that are listening can you just kind of share what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Yeah, probably the best way is um, to message me on LinkedIn or connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. That's okay. that's probably the easiest. I mean, I can share my email address too. It's, there's it's, nothing yeah, we'll, we'll, it, so. I'll put I'll put that on on the show notes so people have it, and right. I'll also put on your your LinkedIn profile on the show notes so people can connect with you. Please connect with David. Introduce yourself. Just tell them that you heard about him on the podcast, and you can certainly chat them up and see if there might be some ways for you to connect. And I actually have a couple of people that I want to introduce David to because they're doing a K through 12 education at a high level as well. And I've always found that when I've connected different design firms like that across the country, it's never a competition thing. It's always a collaboration thing. So you never know where your next opportunity may lie. And, and uh, so I'm going to make sure that I do that, David, but thank you so much for connecting with us and, and sharing your story here. What's the website for GMB? It's gmb.com. There you go. Simple. GMB. 
that was good that you were able to we get did. that. So yeah, that's yeah, cool. We were early adopters to yeah. the internet, I guess. So <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So, well, man, I, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us today on this Wide Letter podcast. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you, Randy. It was a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry, visit zweiggroup.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right to your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. For more information about Zweig Group's advisory services or any of Zweig Group's publications, visit zweiggroup.com. You can subscribe to the Zweig Letter Podcast wherever you listen to it. And please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter Podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.